0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 41 through 48. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is God's Word. Well, it's with great uh, pleasure that I uh, introduce to you John Labruzzo. And uh, it's, it's with great delight that he's here uh, because Pastor Adam and I were both at a Presbytery meeting yesterday that stretched, uh, was it about nine hours? Is that about right? Nine hours long. And so we are grateful that you're able to give us uh, the word this morning. And uh, John is also an elder candidate. Um, he's been nominated by our congregation to be an elder, and um, he's starting officer training this week. This week, So we welcome you to the pulpit. Thank, thank you. Thank you.
1: Okay, so why don't you uh, join me in prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask that you be with us uh, at this time. We thank you for the, the privilege we have to fellowship and to study your word. We pray that you be with us as we... we Come to know you uh, deeper. And we also pray uh, for our our family, uh, the kings. We pray for Allison's dad, that you be with them and give them peace, give them strength. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let me get myself set up here. Um, thank you, Pastor Nick, for the privilege and the honor of of preaching God's word. It's, it is a, a, an honor to do so. And... Uh, I, I take it seriously, so I, it's humbling to be up here. And uh, I also uh, want to say that this is, um, you know, I'm, like Pastor Nick said, I'm, I'm not a, a preacher. I'm actually a, a captain in the U.S. Navy, a naval aviator by trade. And uh, Vicky and my family, we joined Redemption when it first started back in 2014. And there are many reasons why we are members of Redemption. And congratulations to the new families who have joined Redemption Uh, Like you, there there are many reasons why we chose to be members here at this church. But one of the primary reasons is that expository preaching is the centerpiece of Sunday worship. Pastor Nick and Pastor Adam, when they preach, they go verse by verse through the Bible, eliciting from the scripture what the text teaches us. Last year, we studied the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This this year, we started a new series uh, on Proverbs. And so it's important as a congregation that we understand how to, to read God's word. Uh, I also want to say, before I get too far, thank you to Lauren for the help with the, uh, the PowerPoint this morning. We had some technical challenges. Just, yeah. Nope, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get there. And we're there. Okay, good. See, success. All right, it's nice. Microsoft and Apple, you know, they don't always get along. It's, that's a thing. Uh, Yeah, it's all right. It's all good. Um, But so back to the point of why it's important we study Scripture. We we know how to study Scripture. Because in this church, we're going to go verse by verse through the Bible when we do so. And as this is January, it's the start of a new year, I'm willing to assume that some of you may have made a, a New Year's resolution to read through the Bible. And that's a worthwhile cause, and I want to encourage you in doing so, because it can seem to be a daunting challenge to read through the book. It's, it's a very thick book with lots of different types of writings. It was written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents, so it can seem to be a daunting task. So I want to encourage you this morning, and we're going to take a pause from our study of Proverbs to address how to study the Bible. If we are to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must read and understand the Bible. This is vital to our growth as Christians, and we must be careful. So, you know, why be careful? You know, what's the danger? Well, let me ask you. So have any of you been in a small group or a Bible study where, you know, the leader reads a verse and then goes and asks you, Jeff, what does this mean to you? And, and Jason, what does this mean to you? And Shane, what does this verse mean to you? And if, and if your meaning, Shane, differs from Dexter's understanding of the meaning, or they contradict or conflict, well, that's okay, because you can both be right. Or maybe, more pointedly, perhaps you're having a, a conversation with someone over, over a controversial topic, which is not difficult to do in an election year. You know, maybe you're talking about abortion or homosexuality or sin in general. And when you're presenting what the Bible says about that topic, you're confronted by, well, that's your interpretation. Has that happened to you? Have you heard about that? Maybe you experienced it yourself? Well, if so, welcome to postmodernism. You live in a world that is ruled by subjectivism and relativism. It's how you feel, and it's all relative. We live in a world where there is no truth with a capital T but only truths and your truth and your truth and your truth are all equally valid and can all be, uh, be true because meaning is in the eye of the beholder. But in contrast, the Bible proclaims objective truth. Truth, by definition, does not contradict itself. Thus, when reading the Bible, we must understand that there is only one correct meaning ...of any biblical text. I'll say that again. There's only one correct meaning... ...of any biblical text. Now, before you start getting upset... ...and think I'm some kind of narrow-minded one-wayist... ...we also recognize that there may be... ...a multitude of applications of that text. But there's one correct meaning. This is the issue of private interpretation of the Bible. And Rome fought vigorously against this... They were very concerned about the Bible being translated into any language so that anyone could read it. Uh, The papacy persecuted Martin Luther for translating the Bible into German. They persecuted William Tyndale for translating into English to William Tyndale's death. And Rome's concern was that if you allowed untrained people to read the Bible without the guidance of the priests or the steady hand of the magisterium, then private interpretation would open what they called a floodgate of iniquity, resulting in false teachers and fragmenting the church. But Luther believed that that was the risk we needed to take. If so, then let it be, because the Bible was written for the people of God so that it could be read by the people of God in any language. And so the Reformers reestablished time-tested methods of, inter- of interpreting the Bible to help close that floodgate as much as possible. The irony is that Rome's warning in many ways has come true. I'll tell you a quick story. So about six years ago, I was snow skiing, and, and I broke my leg. That's a, that's a different story. All I'm going to say is that Vicki and I were racing, and I won. <laughs> but... To be fair to my wife, she won the first race, and it wasn't going to happen again. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to make sacrifices. So I, I'm laid up with a broken leg, and I'm watching, you know, I'm, I'm surfing through the, the, the channels on, the, on cable. And when you get to the higher channels, you get to so there's some religious uh, networks, you know, Daystar among them. And I'm watching this, and I'm, I was amazed to, to watch these so-called preachers routinely violate these time-tested methods. I mean, they'd they pull out a verse, they twist it, they take it out of context in order to help you believe or make you believe some false doctrine or have you give them money. I mean, these guys are charlatans and false teachers. So we must understand that the privilege of private interpretation also comes with the responsibility of correct interpretation. This is what we call the science of hermeneutics. Now, don't be afraid of the word hermeneutics. It's a, it's a $5 word. It's a Greek word that refers to how to interpret. These are time-tested rules to help us correctly interpret Scripture, to do as Paul urged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, to rightly handle the Word of God. Hermeneutics is is worth deeper study, and I can can recommend some books to you. Foremost among them, I'll I'll give you uh, R.C. Sproul's Knowing Scripture from where I got the title uh, of of this sermon, Uh, and I recommend it for your deeper study, but This morning, I want to present to you, briefly, three primary principles of biblical interpretation. So the first is what Martin Luther called the sensus literalis. It's the literal sense. You know, the Bible is to be interpreted according to its literary forms. You know, it's funny, in the book, R.C. talks about how when someone would confront him with... You don't interpret the Bible literally, do you? And they talk about it in a negative sense, as if how could you, as such a smart person, do such a, such a dumb thing? But then he'd throw them off their game by saying, well, of course I interpret it literally. How else are you going to interpret it? Because the Bible is literature. How else are you going to interpret it? It's, it's still a book. You know, there's a verb is a verb. A noun is a noun. There are sentences with subject, predicate, an object, and punctuation." Grammar matters. Words matter. You know, uh, before coming here, I served on a staff, in, a NATO staff, North Atlantic Treaty Organization staff, and I was a director of pa- plans and policy at Strike Force NATO. We were essentially the NATO counterpart to the US Sixth Fleet. And our mission was to integrate US Navy and Marine Corps combat power into the alliance and then command and control it. And as a director of plans, I, I wrote a lot of operational plans. And we would have very robust debates on the exact meanings of the words and the grammar we are using in writing these plans. I mean, if you're writing an operational plan and you want a carrier strike group to go do such and such, or a Marine Expedition Unit to go do this, and that subordinate commander is going to need to take what you wrote and read it, interpret it, and understand it clearly, words matter. Grammar matters. And the same is true for the Bible. You can read this. It's, It's just a book. And what will help us recognize, like I said, it's not any ordinary. Of course, written over 1,500 years with 40 different authors. There are many different literary forms in the book, different genres. And so it is also helpful to be able to recognize and understand those genres. We need to be able to recognize what is historical narrative, that type of prose that talks about actual events that occurred in history. We need to be able to recognize what is poetry or an epistle, the letters and didactic literature. Didactic is just another word to describe that literature that is instructional in nature. It it teaches you something. We also better recognize what is parable and wisdom literature. We know we're going through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is an example of wisdom literature. It's a type of genre that we find in the Bible. And when you understand when you're reading Proverbs that it is wisdom literature, that helps you understand what you're reading. We must also recognize the use of language. Recognizing what is metaphor, which is comparing a well-known object with a not-so-well-known object to make a point. It's teaching by use of analogy. Jesus uses metaphor frequently. When you read in the Gospel of John all of the I am statements, I am the vine, I am the living water, I am the door. When Jesus says, I am the door, he's not saying that he has varnish and hinges. He's saying that he's a door figuratively. That's what a metaphor is. And being able to recognize that will help us understand what we're reading. We also need to recognize what is hyperbole, which is an intentional exaggeration of the truth in order to make a point. Symbolism can be difficult to to interpret, and we recognize this. Symbolism is a description of an object using a related image, expressing the invisible by means of the visible. And like I said, it can be difficult to interpret. But when you understand what is symbolic, it helps you understand what is the correct meaning of that text. Then there's personification, also called anthropomorphic language. It's attributing human qualities to something that's not human. We just saw this last week when Nick te- teached on Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. We read how wisdom was personified, made to be a person who was urging us to follow her call, to be obedient to, to, that, to that heed. Again, the Bible is not any ordinary book. We know it's, it's the norm of all norms, it is, it, is, it is inspired, it's divine, we recognize it, it's infallible, yes and amen. But it's still a book. It's a book you can read. It's a book you can study. It's a book you can understand. It's not a Harry Potter book of spells. The second principle is what is known as the grammatical historical method, or more simply, the, the classical method. This is the method that strives to understand the original meaning of the text, bridging the gap between the time it was written and today. If the literal sense says that grammar matters, the classical method says that context matters. You're familiar with the old real estate saying, right? Location, location, location. Well, add this one to your toolbox. It's context, context, context. Every biblical text occurs in a context. Who was the human author? When was it written? Who was the audience? What was the purpose? That's a key one. When you're reading Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, it's very helpful to understand what was the purpose, what was the problem that the Corinthian church was dealing with that caused Paul to write that letter. Where does that text occur in the chapter and in the book? What was the original language? Ancient Hebrew and Koine Greek will forever be with us because the Bible was written in those languages. This also enables us to understand the nuances in the text, being able to recognize differences in writing styles. John writes differently than Paul. It also helps us understand idioms. You know, I, like I said, I'm a naval aviator. We use idioms frequently to, to talk. We use acronyms, you know, but idioms are also very helpful. And A lot of our idioms come from movie quotes. And so a few years ago, I was leading my planning group. And I'll tell you this quote. And you see if you can, you can recognize the movie it came from. And I told the group, we don't want to cross the streams. Crossing the streams is bad. Thank you. All right, Ghostbusters. Well done. You know, Dr. Beckman, you don't want to cross the streams. cross the streams is bad. So I'm telling this to my, group, my planning group because we had two parallel tasks, and I, we didn't want them to conflict, you know, I don't want to cross, you know, want to cross the streams. Well, the, the Polish naval officer who was working for me, you know, he's a child of the 80s like me. In fact, we're the same age. Uh, but he grew up in communist Poland. He had never seen Ghostbusters. He had no idea what I was talking about. So, you know, you got to understand what, what is, you know, being able to recognize the idiom and understand the idiom is very helpful. And on a related note, I'm kind of interested, you know, being that it's an election year, how many people are really interested in socialism. And I think they ought to talk to my friend Miroslav. He'll tell them how fantastic communism is. That was sarcasm. So there's, there is also sarcasm in the Bible, too. You will find divine sarcasm in the book of Isaiah. It's fantastic. Chapter 46. But so understanding, you know, the, the context and being able to recognize these nuances in a text will help you understand what you're reading. The syntax, the history, understanding the differences between what is culture and what is principle. Again, when you're reading and studying 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of elements in there that are cultural in nature. It was written to a church in 1st century Roman Empire. We can't impose upon it our 21st century context. But there is a lot of principle in 1 Corinthians as well. So being able to recognize that difference will help you as you study the Bible. The third principle is called the analogy of faith. It's, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. So the Holy Spirit is his own interpreter. It's another way of saying that the Bible does not contradict itself. Now, we recognize that there are Indeed, difficult passages in the Bible. There are texts that are challenging to understand. And so, what this principle tells us is that we interpret what is implicit in light of what is explicit. Or, in other words, we look at those passages where something on that, something may be obscure or more difficult to understand, and we interpret it in light of what is clearer or more presented, uh, easier un- to understand in another section on the same topic. We interpret the implicit in light of the explicit every passage of scripture must be measured and interpreted against the whole of scripture now don't misunderstand this point it's still important to be able to draw inferences for example you will not find the word trinity explicitly in the bible but we understand that the doctrine of the trinity is clearly taught We we see that God is one, and we see that Jesus is God, and that the Holy Spirit is also divine. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly taught, but the word Trinity isn't explicitly there. So we still can take and make inferences from the Bible, but when you're dealing with that difficult text, we interpret what is implicit in light of what is explicit. And if we understood that one principle, it would help prevent many errors and many uh, misinterpretations. Okay, so that this sermon isn't purely an academic exercise, I want to spend the balance of our time examining a well-known text of Scripture, and we're going to apply these principles that we just uh, just learned. And I'm sure you've, you've heard this text before. To whom much was given, of him much will be required. So what is the meaning of this text? Looking to pop culture, is it what Spider-Man's Uncle Ben meant when he said, with great power comes great responsibility? And if we're going to look to superheroes, I'm I'm more of a DC fan, frankly, and so I would go with this one. You can't read it, but I'll tell you what it says. This was hanging in our daughter Jackie's bedroom. It says, always be yourself, unless you can be Batman, and then you should always be Batman. And that's really true, because Batman is cool, right? (laughs) Uh, But seriously... Is the meaning of this text a call for social justice? Eight years ago, during the 2012 election year, President Obama, addressing the national prayer breakfast, quoted this text as justification for an economic policy of raising taxes on the wealthy to to redistribute uh, wealth. But it's not just in political realms, either. Bill Gates, one of the richest people on the planet, has also quoted this passage. Uh, as an encouragement that the wealthy do have a responsibility to to use their wealth because to whom much is given, much will be required. So in order to understand the real meaning, the true meaning of this text, let's apply those hermeneutic principles to understand it. So let's get to that hermeneutic approach. Who is the whom? What has been given? And what is the requirement? You know, where is this verse found? You know, the common quote is not even the whole verse. We find it in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But the one who did not know, and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Well, that's interesting. I mean, someone's getting a beating, so that's, that's curious. Let's examine the text. And to encourage you, I used two study Bibles. I, I like the ESV study Bible and its notes. I also use, uh, this right here is the latest edition of the Reformation study Bible. I also use a commentary by John MacArthur. This is, these are resources that are available to, to all of you, and you can have this and use this in your own study, and I encourage you to do that. So let's examine this. What, what's the context? Who wrote it? Well, we know from uh, the title and from the beginning and from uh, extra-biblical information that it was written by Luke. And Luke was uh, from Antioch. And Luke was the Apostle Paul's protege, his traveling companion. We know that from, from Scripture. We also know that Luke was a physician, that he was scientific. He was precise in his language. When was it written? Well, it was likely written before the year eighty sixty two. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 28, the last chapter in that book, ends in the year AD 62 when, uh, before Paul, while Paul is in prison uh, preaching in Rome. And so we know that this book, the book of Luke, was most likely written before AD 62. So we're talking about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. What's the literary genre? Well, this is historical narrative and a particular type of historical narrative. It's, it's gospel. We know this explicitly from the very beginning of the book. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1-4. through 4. I'll read it for you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke wrote this book specifically to to provide an account of the the eyewitnesses of Jesus, of what the life and times and the ministry of Jesus Christ was. This was historical narrative, but it's capturing that good news of Jesus Christ, that gospel. Now, where does Luke chapter 12, verse 48 occur in the chronology of the book, because that gives us an understanding of that context. Looking at the whole gospel, this verse occurs soon after Jesus began his final journey towards Jerusalem. So it's, it's after the Galilean ministry. It's after Jesus has performed many miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He's healed the sick. He's calmed the storm. It's after the Sermon on the Mount. It's after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, and after he saw uh, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's before Jerusalem, before the triumphal entry, before the cross. So what is the context? This verse is part of a larger section of various teachings and warnings given by Jesus to those following him as they traveled to Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells us that the followers were a large crowd, thousands. So many, they were, they were trampling on one another. And so this large crowd also included the 12 apostles, plus other disciples or learners. Most, if not all of them, were Jews, which meant they know who God is, Yahweh. They know the Mosaic law. They understand what sin is. They know about the Messiah. They've, they've heard the prophecies. And they know that they are the chosen people. They understand that they are in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And this group includes believers and unbelievers. A lot of people were following Jesus because he was worth following. And they didn't know what to think. So in this chapter, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, Jesus is warning people in the the following sections not to follow false teachers, not to follow the, the Pharisees that were leading them astray. Jesus is teaching them to fear God instead of men, to confess Christ before men, and to trust in God and not worry. Last week, Nick read the parable of the rich fool. That is in this section where God is telling this group to trust in God, to not be like the rich fool. And that's why he used the literary form of parable to teach them that point. Then in verse 35, it begins a particular, this particular section with a parable about being ready for Christ's return. Jesus tells the group a parable about, you know, the master who's urging the servants to to stay dressed for action, to have their lamps burning, waiting for the master's return because the master's gone away to a wedding feast. And Jesus says, blessed are those servants who are ready. And ready is building upon what he had told them before, to to know uh, Christ, to confess Christ, and to trust in Christ and verse 40 is key it says the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect and another idiom is the son of man it's actually one of the titles of christ there are many titles given to christ when you read in the Bible. But when you study and recognize the the context and the idiom and the language, you recognize that the Son of Man is actually Jesus' favorite name for himself. And it's the one that he uses personally to refer to himself more often than not. And it refers to a prophecy dating back to the seventh chapter of Daniel, which talks about the Messiah coming in judgment. So when Jesus calls, says, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. He's talking about the Messiah coming in judgment. So now let's read the whole passage, what was just read uh, eloquently before uh, we started the sermon. So, again, this is Luke 12, verse 41 through 48. I'm going to cheat and get my glasses on. peter said lord are you telling this parable for us or for all so peter is a spokesman for the 12 he's always the one asking the questions it seems and so what's the context verse the, the previous section was that parable about being ready for the master's return being ready so that you, when the son of man comes when he comes though he comes at an hour you do not expect you're ready and peter asked the obvious question he's like Lord, are you saying this to everyone, this huge crowd, or are you saying that to us, to the 12? So Jesus responds in verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Jesus doesn't answer the question with the answer. He actually answers the question with another question. Sorry, that's, that's probably too small for you guys to see. You can probably need these too. Um, but he, he answers the question with a question, with another parable. Talking about who is the wise servant and understanding the, the manager. That, the manager is that slave or servant, that steward, who is put in charge of the master's estate. Continuing in verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So Jesus tells Peter the question of whether that preceding parable was to the larger crowd or just to the 12. It doesn't matter. What it is about is about that good, faithful steward who who understands the master's will and will be obedient to it. But then Jesus transitions. So in verse 45 we read, But, now when you read the word but, the conjunction but, you remember conjunction, junction, what's your function? Maybe some of you do. Um, Now we're going to see a distinction. A distinction is about to be made. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Wow. That's a lot more than you're fired. Jesus draws a distinction about one unfaithful servant. We're going to read about two more here next. So then there's another, there's three unfaithful servants. The next one is, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will will receive a severe beating. And verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. So, after answering Peter's question with the example of, here, was what, here is what the good and faithful steward, the good manager looks like. He presents a contrast of three unfaithful stewards. The first one really is an indictment of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had the master's will. They were, they were the stewards of the master's will, and they were using it abusing the people and 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 not being generous with, with God's good pleasure. And they were using that their knowledge of the will to hold the people and beat the male and female servants, as it says. The second unfaithful servant also knows the master's will. He knows the truth, but he's still disobedient. He's still ignoring it. He's still not following it. And the third unfaithful student is ignorant of the will has no idea about the master's will, but is still being disobedient. All three are punished. We see that explicitly. It's written there. All three are punished. All go to hell. So are there other passages in Scripture that shed light on this text that can help us interpret the implicit in light of the explicit, the obscure in light of the clear? Yes, there are. We see in Matthew chapter 25 and Acts chapter 1 and 2 Peter, all passages where the Bible talks about Christ coming again, giving clarity to the parables that Jesus was telling the crowd and the 12 about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming again. In Matthew chapter 25, you have the parable of the talents. I'm sure you're familiar with that par- uh, passage where you have the master who gives talents, different types, to, to his servants and how they are good stewards or not of those talents. We also see a a passage earlier in Luke's chapter, in chapter 10, where Jesus is cursing unrepentant cities. And to add a little bit more clarity, there's a parallel passage for that same uh, section in Matthew chapter 11, and I'll read it briefly for you. Uh, It begins, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. This is Jesus talking to them. Cursing these unrepentant cities. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. How does that shed some light on this? Well, The parables Jesus was was telling the crowd in chapter 12 of Luke are similar to what we told the same group in chapter 10 of Luke or in chapter 11 of Matthew. Jesus performed miracles, supernatural acts, in these Jewish cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. And yet, the people in those cities remained unrepentant, refused to believe, refused to acknowledge and confess Christ and put their trust in him. And Jesus is saying to them, cursing them, saying... If I had done these miracles in Sodom, they would have repented. But you haven't. So now here's another question, because one of what we're trying to get at is what was given? To whom much is given? We need to know what was that. Are there any passages in Scripture that shed some light on what was given? And there are. In Romans chapter 3, after Paul builds this argument, laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that all have sinned and fallen short, but that the law of God is not enough to save us, and that the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work in Gentiles, non-Jews, to save them, renders them as if they were Jews, spiritually, in the heart. It saves them as if they were circumcised in the heart. And so Paul raises this question, the logical question of whether there's any advantage at all of being an ethnic Jew. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And you'd almost expect Paul to say, well, well, there's no value, really. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. There's there's no value at all in being a Jew. But what does he say explicitly? In verse 2, much in every way there's enormous value in being a Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had this. They had the scriptures. Much in every way is valuable. What about the requirement? We've got to know what, what is required. And the, this crowd knew it. They were the covenant people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6... Verses 4 through 9, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and there shall be written as... They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the Old Testament law. The covenant that that God gave to the Jews. Tell them that my word I give to you and you need to know it. You need to put it on your mind. And what was interesting is that the Pharisees took this literally in a crass sense of the word. They actually made these boxes where they had God's word printed in it. These ph- they were called phylacteries and they would tie them, bind them to their foreheads. They took this in a crass sense of literalism, binding the word to their forehead when really what God was saying was my word, my truth, my instruction, it needs to be here. It needs to be here. It needs to be here. And we also know that this is not unique to the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 2.15, and I like the King James Version, we're told that we have a responsibility to study God's word. Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. We have this great privilege of private interpretation. We have this book. It comes with the responsibility of correct interpretation. So what is the meaning of Luke chapter 12, verse 48? Who is the whom? Well, as Jesus' parable points out, it's, it's everyone, which is qualified by what is given. So what has been given? It's the knowledge of the master's will. It's the truth. It's God's word. We understand the difference between general revelation and special revelation. As Nick said, we are enjoying creation. We are God's creation. He is the creator. All of creation testifies that it was created by him. But as Romans chapter 1 says, that's just enough to leave us without excuse. Because it's obvious that this world was created. But God didn't just leave it there. He didn't, he's not some clockmaker who built the clock, wound it up, and let it run, and it has no part of it. The biblical worldviews tells us that, yes, God is, and God created the world, but he has revealed himself. He's given us this book that we may know him more clearly and understand what he's done for us. That is what has been given. What is the requirement? Obedience, To the master. That's the requirement. The tall requirement. To know God's word. To study it. The great commission. Matthew 28. It applies to us. Compare the good and faithful servants to the unfaithful ones. What is at stake? So now after that, I ask you again, is is Luke 12, 48 a verse about social justice? Don't misunderstand me. Our Lord Jesus has an enormous heart for the oppressed, for the widows, for the orphans. We are told to care for the widows and the orphans. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is not a verse about taxing the rich to give to the poor. Tell you a quick story. So, a few years ago, five, four years ago, we spent Christmas in Prague. It's a fantastic city. And this is a, view, a picture I took. And up on the hill in the distance, you can see Prague Castle. And in the center of Prague Castle is St. Vitus' Cathedral, built in the year 1372. It's a, it's a beautiful church, and it's a beautiful Gothic cathedral. And what I was struck by as we, we walked around the, this cathedral is that of all the architecture, of all the design, of all the beauty, there was only one work of art that actually communicated a message, communicated something of substance. There, is a, there was a mosaic, a beautiful mosaic, on the exterior of one of the gates. And this mosaic, it's hard, maybe hard to see, but... This mosaic communicated the last judgment. You can see here, this is the dead rising, this is Jesus sitting in judgment, and this is the casting into hell of unbelievers. Of all the things that the builders of this 14th century cathedral wanted to communicate to the people that were going through that gate, the one message they wanted them to know was don't forget about the last judgment. Just as Jesus said in that parable in verse 40, be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Well, so what? I mean, really, what, why does this matter? What's the importance here? Much was given to the Jew. We know that. That's what the verse was, the correct meaning of the verse is. But much has been given to you. Each one of us in this room, I am willing to assume, safely, I think, has a smartphone. You can download right now the Bible, the Word of God, in almost any translation, in almost any language you want. Harken back to what Martin Luther and William Tyndale did to get the Bible in usable languages. And today, in 2020, you have it at your fingertips. Much has been given to you. If we are to be Christians, we need to read his word. You know, like I was telling you the story earlier about it, when you go into those higher channels on the, on the religious networks, you know, a lot of people today in this, in this postmodern world, they, they want to have a feeling they they wanna they don't wanna read the Bible, that's too hard. They just wanna they just wanna hear God speak to them. You know, they want to have a dream or a vision. Reading the Bible is just is just too pedestrian for them. Let me read you this excerpt from 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter is a second letter we have from the Apostle Peter. He wrote it to believers who were dealing with the, the the threat of false teachers who were trying to infiltrate the church and teach false doctrine. And people were trying to counter what they knew, was what, what Peter knew as the truth. And so in verse 16 of Peter, uh, 2 Peter 1, he begins, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. You see what Peter's telling this group? He's like, we're not making this up. These aren't cleverly devised myths. This is what eyewitnesses saw. We saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him transformed. We saw him glorified. We heard God speak audibly. You can count the number of people in Scripture who actually hear God speak audibly. Peter heard that. But here's the key point. The very next verse, in verse 19, Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, other translations will say, "We have the word more sure." We, he, what Peter's saying is that we have something more sure than what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, this—I mean, you get this. This is this is Peter, right? This is the spokesman of the twelve, right? He he saw Jesus Christ. He was with him. In the week in Jerusalem, with them on the Mount of Transfigurations, heard God speak. And yet Peter says, we have something more sure, more sure than that. Everybody wants to have a feeling and wants to have God talk to them audibly. If you want to hear God speak to you, read this. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. But let me encourage you in this. As Nick pointed out in the call to worship, why is this gospel? Why is this good news? God is holy and God is just, and He's given us His law. He gave His law to the Jews, to the Pharisees, and to the tax collectors. But the law can't save us because we're incapable of following the law. This whole book points to Jesus Christ. It points to him as our savior, as our redeemer. Because he lived the life we cannot live. A perfect sinless life. And that by believing in him we have faith and we have salvation Let me encourage you in reading this. You should read the Bible. Get a study Bible. You want to understand you know, why Jesus Christ is that sacrifice? If you've made your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible, you may have already gotten through Genesis, and you've gotten through Exodus. And we, we are very easy at reading those books. We're familiar with the stories. We've seen the Charlton Heston movie, and we get through it. But then we get to Leviticus, and oh. Ugh. There's some hard sledding there. But if you want to understand that God is holy and how Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, how he is the lamb without blemish and the scapegoat, and how that works, how salvation works, how Jesus actually performs that for us, read Leviticus. You want to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Read the Gospel of John. John explicitly states that his purpose in writing that book is so that we may know with certainty that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You want to you know how? Let me start over. I love the book of Romans. If, for those of you who know me, I, I love Romans. I like Paul's writing, like I was saying, understanding his different writing style. Paul is a... Uh, He has a very academic style, and that appeals to me. You want to know why you need a Savior? Do you want to know how you are saved? And then do you want to know how you should live once you are saved? Read Romans. You can do this. You can read this book. Start off with John. Read John. Study John. Read Romans. Study that didn't hit Leviticus you understand that that Jesus is faithful read Joshua and judges because one thing we are not is faithful one thing that he is amazingly is faithful and not forget that the whole Bible this book points to Jesus Christ we can read the Bible we can understand the Bible We can rightly handle the Bible. We can know the Master's will. And we can be encouraged. We can stand for the truth in a world that is searching for truth. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good and righteous and just master. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you that you've given us this precious resource that we may know you and that we may know who we are in you. Help us to be encouraged to study it, to read it, to understand it, to not be like the Pharisees where we, we just simply write it on a box and tape it to our foreheads, but actually put it in our minds, put it in our hearts, put it on our tongues. Help us to encourage others so we can pray for those who are in need. And then that we may, because you change hearts, have a heart for those who are in need of your good news, for those who are truly oppressed, for the widows and the orphans. You have given us so much, Father, and we are very thankful. In Your Holy Name, we pray. Amen. Amen.